Welcome to Life After Service. This is the audio-only version of this month's episode. You can watch now the original video documentary on YouTube, youtube.com slash podcast. Find out more on our website. All details in the episode description. This documentary episode features Don Barnby. These people need to be looked after and they need to know that they can be looked after without affecting their career because yeah, that's their life and they did it. They volunteered, they did it willingly. All around the country, Australians sign up and put their lives on the line to do their part to protect the nation and its interests. But when the day comes to hang up their uniform for the last time, it's the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. In this series, we talk to some of our veterans about their life after service. Don Barmby served in the Australian Defence Force for six years, including as a member of the Special Air Service Regiment. He deployed with the SAS to Vietnam in 1971. This was followed by a decades-long career in the Australian Federal Police, with deployments to Cyprus, Bougainville and East Timor in the 1999 independence referendum. In Season 2 of the Life on the Line podcast, he spoke to Thomas Kay in a two-part conversation about his extensive service to the nation and returned later that year in a veterans panel discussion with David Finney and Sharon Bowne. Thomas caught up with Don again in his home in Canberra. So Don, we're here for Life After Service yep. and you finished up with the Army and then went to pursue a career with the police. Yep. Could you tell us about that transition? Well, I did uh, six years in the Army and my father was in the New South Wales Police. And he, I, having been in the regiment, um, I, th- I didn't think I'd make a good bank teller or uh, you know, sitting behind a desk. So I wanted a bit, of, bit more of an adrenaline thing. So dad being in the police force, um, and he came to Canberra during the Springbok tour in the early 70s. And he knew one of the guys, uh, inspector or somebody uh, in ACT police, he'd served with him in New South Wales. And he noticed that the, the pay scale of the ACT police was good. They seemed to have better equipment than the New South Wales police and that, at that stage. And also they didn't transfer around because I went to about four different schools. And you know, New South Wales, three or four years here, then you move on. So if I ever was thinking of getting married and I did. I actually got married soon after I left the army. Um, I wouldn't be transferred around. The only other place you could go from Canberra would be Jarvis Bay. So that was appealing. And uh, I liked the idea of going to Canberra. So that's why I joined the ACT police. And what roles did you pursue within the ACT police? Well, I joined in 1973. Uh, Initially, I in those days, the ACT police did embassies. Um, that was later taken over by Compol, but I did embassies. I worked, did security, i.e. police-type security at uh, what is now Old Parliament House. Uh, we did all the embassies, the Russian embassy, the Egyptian embassy, the Israeli embassy, 
And then I went from there after I did my time, I think you had to do about three to six months on embassies. And then I went to general duties and I was based in city stations. So I did about 12, bit over 12 months on general duties, you know, doing normal general duties investigations from deaths, uh, suicides, breaking edders, assaults, you know, the normal gambit. And a mate of mine that I joined the police force with, uh, he went on the bikes. He applied for the bikes and got it, Mick Dana. And uh, so I joined, I did a bike course and uh, a little bit like SAS selection. There's about 15 of us started and four of us finished. And um, I was on the bikes for about 12 years. And, but during that, I was also in the rescue squad because in those days, the rescue squad was part-time. They didn't have a full-time rescue squad. So I was in the uh, rescue squad. And as a result of that, being in the rescue squad, I uh, deployed to Darwin after Cyclone Tracy in 1974. Uh, we were having Christmas lunch and the phone rang and they said, mate, you're on a plane to Darwin in two hours. Pack a bag. So I put the uh, Christmas chicken down and <laughs> packed a bag. My wife was not very impressed. So I got back about six, seven weeks later and uh, went up to Darwin. Now that was an experience. And at the same time, while I was on the bikes, I, after I got out of the rescue squad, having done lots of searches all over the ACT, um, I joined Special Operations, SOT team. Um, yeah, the black pyjama guys, you know, you kick down the door and do yeah. drug busts and all this sort of stuff. So um, I had a, a fairly varied, interesting, you know, lots of adrenaline, interesting, interesting time in the early days in the police force. And then we amalgamated in 1979, uh, ACT Compol to join, to form the Federal Police. So as a result of that, and Cyprus was then going, and, and initially in the early days, it was uh, state police forces, because of uh, a quick anecdotal story there. Uh, Dad wanted to, Dad applied to join, to go to Cyprus in 1964, 65. Is one of the first contingents. I think it was the first. Anyway, as a kid, I just remember he and Mum having a discussion, um, a discussion in the kitchen, and Mum won. He didn't go, and uh, the irony of it was I did. And uh, so we, then the state forces pulled out, and I think Commonwealth Police took over. So when we went in 1980, uh, we deployed as. Australian Federal Police, so I was on the first AFP contingent to Cyprus, UNSIPOL. Uh, did 18 months there, the tours we extended for six months, so we did 18 months there. Um, interesting, and then I came back, got divorced, went back again. I was asked to go back, a couple of guys had been sent home, and so I went back for another 18 months, so I ended up doing three years in Cyprus. And then I came back and went back on the bikes, uh, and I could see my time on the bikes, you know, drawing to a close. I was starting to transfer some of the senior guys. So I um, made my own career moves and did a lot of lobbying and I eventually got into witness security. So I went into witness security on the 11th of November 1985. I did five, six years in witness security. Again, interesting. That was the, when witness security was in its infancy in the Australian Federal Police. So we did a lot of groundbreaking stuff. Uh, and then I uh, 
was promoted to sergeant in 1990 and then went to uh, VIP protection. Yeah. And my first job was looking after the uh, Turkish ambassador and his wife. And that was good. And then there was, um, then the election came along, the Houston election. I can't, don't quote me or correct me if I'm wrong, 91, 92. And I was uh, one of the sergeants in charge of the, one of the three teams on John Houston. So we did that election, which was a long six week election. Travelled Australia doing that, uh, then got out. And then um, there was a vacancy came up on the uh, Bob Hawke, the PM's team during the first Gulf War. So I went on that for uh, about eight months. Uh, had a great time working with Bob Hawke, he's fantastic, fantastic guy. Lots of good memories there. And then uh, got off and then there, another vacancy came up on the Governor-General's team. So I refused to put my name up. I, I, I didn't like the clamouring for, yeah, it, it was one of the best jobs in the, in, in the CPP area, VIP area. So I uh, took my um, uh, Turkish team up to Parliament House, we played tennis. I didn't want to get involved in all the politics and the dynamics of what was going on there. Anyway, a couple of the older sergeants apparently uh, put me up and they said, what about Barney? So my name went forward and I, I got it. And then I did five or six years with uh, Bill Hayden when he was Governor General. Fantastic, fantastic job. Traveled the world. And then I got out and then they finally, when, when Bill finally finished as the Governor General, um, Sir William Dean, I think, took over. And then I, um, there was two guys on the team, on the Governor-General's team. We were both let slide and uh, I think I had the choice of either going back to GDs, locking up drunks and getting into fights again, so which, I, which didn't really appeal, and or um, going to the third or fourth floor and I chose the fourth floor for no reason and it turned out to be Interpol. So I did two years in Interpol. My contract was two years and that just devastated me because I think I almost, I had to hand in my gun. So I suddenly, from being an operational copper, you know, for 23 odd years, I became a peer, basically, a public servant. I used to catch the bus to work, because I used to drive the bike home when I was on the bikes, the police car when I was in CPP and WITSEC and all that sort of stuff. And suddenly I was catching the bus to work with a lunchbox. I mean, yeah, really? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> and I thought, no, this is not me. Anyway, I, I duly did my time there. And a lot of the guys knew that I was a frustrated little puppy behind this computer. And they, they used to have a little thing. I'd walk in every morning and they'd say, Morning, Barney, how are we today? And I said, just effing peachy. <laughs> just peachy. So that, you know, that, that set the scene. And so I did my two years. But during my two years in Interpol, uh, Bougainville was kicking off. So uh, I was asked if I would... Uh, be interested in going and I and the way I put it was I escaped one jungle the office for another jungle Bougainville and that was a that was a hard mission we did just under three months there and I think I was the second on the second team to ever go over and at that stage it was the TMG the truce monitoring group and we were working with the New Zealand army and I was, uh, there was two AFP guys went up. One guy went to Buko Island, which was gorgeous. And uh, yeah, lots of seafood and beaches everywhere. 
and I was sent into the wilds down near um, Tonu and Savelli, which was in a big swamp and it was just crap, it was just terrible. And uh, so that was, quite, I got quite sick over, over there because it was, um, the conditions were rough. I mean, really, really hard. Um, and I got sick, I was uh, piddling blood, there was blood coming out just about every orifice. I lost 12, 12 kilos, 12, 13 kilos, and um, really tough conditions. But we did, we did the job we had, we had to do. And I think then, after we left, the New Zealand Army pulled out and, and the Australian Army came in, then it, I think it morphed into the PMG, which was the Peace Monitoring Group. And so then I came back to the AFP. And while I was over there, I, I'd done 25 years then in the AFP. And I sort of thought I'd, I'd done enough. So I uh, sent some uh, messages to Canberra via the New Zealand sat phones. No, no comms anyway. And um, to, I wanted to get out. So I resigned in 1998 and after 25 years and then I went to Europe, uh, travelled all around Europe and I just got back from three months overseas in Europe. Oh that's right, then I did, a, that's right, when I got out of the police force I walked the Cape Roth trial because a mate of mine I was in the ACT police lived in, then lived in Kilmarnock in Scotland and he was Scottish and when he was in the Merchant Navy back in the 60s he said I always want to walk to Cape Roth which is the most northern lighthouse in, in Scotland. So uh, he was still over there, so we, we teed this up over a couple of years. So I got out of the police force, uh, duly went to Scotland. We did the Cape Roth Trail, lost all my toenails, and that was an experience, walking through the bloody wilds of Scotland. And then came back to Australia, and then my girlfriend and I, then we did another trip back to Europe. And we did about a two-month tour to you know, Spain, Italy, Dublin, all around Ireland, England. And I'd just got back from that one, and a mate of mine who was the uh, Assistant Commissioner in charge of personnel said, have you been reading about Timor, East Timor? Because when I was over in Europe, uh, Bosnia and Croatia and all that was you know, pretty hot. So I said, yeah, I sort of know a little bit about East Timor. He said, we're sending a contingent. Are you interested? I said, yeah, it could be, uh, but I said, I'm out. And he said, yeah, I know that. But he said, we're going to bring you back in. I said, I, and that had never been done before. That was the first time ever that I, that a, a, a police officer, sworn, badged, had resigned and then was brought back in as a uniform member with the same badge number. Never happened before. And there was a lot of controversy within the police force about that decision. But anyway, they do it all the time now, so it worked. So I said, how long have I got to think about it? And he said, oh, five, five minutes. And I looked at, Judy was, Judy, my partner at that stage was behind me and I went, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, and she just, not happy, not happy, Jen. So then I was uh, brought back in the police force on a, I think it was a four month contract. And I was put in charge of training, which was again, square peg, round hole stuff. I should have been I couldn't train. I mean, I've never been in the training field. And the guy that was put in charge of getting all the equipment together was a, was a trainer in the police force. So, you know, go figure. Anyway, so we, we did, Julie did the training and then I was on the uh, first AFP contingent to Timor and the rest is history 
you've talked about that or we've talked about that. And you know, did me three months there. And got shot at more there than I'd ever did in Vietnam and it was just, that broke me. So I got out, did my contract, got out. And uh, just an, 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 a, 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 an addition to that story, five of us went back in 2019 uh, for the 20th anniversary of the election in 99 or the referendum in 99. And that, that was very, uh, and I hate this word, but it was cathartic uh, for all of us. Um, there was a couple of us um, that had big doubts. We're in Sydney waiting to catch a flight to Darwin to go. I almost didn't get, the plane, get, get on the plane. I, I had big doubts. I, I didn't think I could do it because Timor is a pretty open wound, very raw still, even after 20 years. So I think it was a good thing that we all went back and, and most of us felt the same. It was pretty, um, pretty emotional time. Anyway, that was an amazing, uh, amazing visit. We were there for three weeks, I think. And it was filmed, parts of it were filmed by an SBS film crew uh, from SBS Dateline show. And it's online now. Um, brilliant, brilliant show. But it was very good for all of us and it was a sort of closed off a chapter there. And just seeing the people yeah, we saw tears and heard gunfire. Now you hear kids laughing and playing and yeah, it's picking up. There's a lot of issues that need to be dealt with in Timor. That's another story. But it was a good, good move to go. Happy I did. Do you think that anything of any of your training from your time in the military helped you with your time in the police force? Oh, most definitely, most, most definitely. Uh, the training I got as a kid helped me with the army because dad was uh, in the police force, as I said, but he was a very strict, strict father. I, I, we won't go into stories, but he never, never uh, uh, beat us up or anything, but he was very strict. And you know, we'd be up at 5.36 every morning, you know, lighting the fire in the, in the oven. And, and uh, when other kids were playing, I'd be mowing the lawns or chopping wood or washing the car or doing this or doing that. He didn't allow me to wear jeans because he said only hoodlums wear jeans, so I didn't have jeans. I used to have a haircut, get a haircut every couple of weeks, and this is in the 60s when long hair was coming in. So, yeah, as a kid, that really stood out, and it was very difficult. And he, uh, he made me kill my old pet sheep because, you know, he wanted to teach me how to slaughter, slaughter sheep, slaughter, you know, slaughter things. He used to kill kangaroos for the skin and the meat in those days. And, uh, and I love animals, always have. Can't shoot an animal. And I used to deliberately miss the kangaroos and he'd clip me over the ear because he knew I was a good shot. So he was very strict. So all the things that he taught me made the training in the army quite, quite easy. As I've always said, people, you know, Deb hears the stories, my partner hears the stories of the way my childhood. He wasn't a bad father, but he was strict, very strict disciplinary and I said his lessons his life lessons that he gave me were brilliant he could have polished up on the delivery a bit <laughs> yeah I mean yeah these days it'd be abuse I mean yeah he'd probably end up in court but uh, in those days it just happened if we did something wrong or well, one of yeah I had a sister one one sibling and if either of us did something wrong he beat both of us and he, he used to do leather work in his spare time and he was a stockman before he joined the police force in the 30s so he used to have the end of a stock whip, and that's what he used to hit us over, give us a stripe across the tail with. So yeah, it was a it was a good childhood, but 
and I've moved on from that, but the, the training that he gave me, the life lessons, I really think they got me through SAS particularly. Well, the Army yeah, recruit training. I found the recruit training quite easy. I mean, yeah, I was in the cadets at school and, and getting up at six o'clock, no big deal. Yeah, no, no biggie. Yeah, lots of exercise, no biggie. Uh, loved all the military stuff, yeah, and because uh, we've done that in the previous interview, so I won't go there. But um, no, it, was, it certainly came in handy. It set me up for later life. Did it help you on your trips when you were with the police? So when you were facing with the different challenges like from Bougainville and Timor? Yeah, it did. Um, Vietnam, again, the SAS training really cut in there. Uh, just, made, just, just being aware of a lot of things that probably generally you wouldn't be. And, and then, um, then general, just general police awareness. Police make good peacekeepers because we generally, although there's been exceptions, generally go unarmed. And our, our primary skill is negotiation. And you know, open hands, you know, trying to sort out the issue. We don't go in, you know, boots on the ground with lots of guns and uh, there's no force there. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that previous training in the military as a kid and particularly SAS really came to the fore. Um, and, and particularly in both Bougainville and Timor, Cyprus again was, you know, I mean, that was, that was quite enjoyable. We had our issues, we had, we had incidents, you know, but the Iran-Iraq war, you know, which affected a lot of things and the takeover by the military in Turkey and they moved all the tanks up on the, on the buffer zone and all this sort of stuff, but, you know, not really worrying stuff. Beirut, I spent a bit of time in Beirut. That was, I think that was in the previous interview somehow. Uh, we had some issues in Beirut in 82, you know, uh, 83, sorry. And the American embassy got bombed and, and that school got bombed. I, I stayed in that the night before they got bombed. And those 275 Marines got killed. Yeah, so uh, there was um, yeah, a few issues there. But um, generally, yeah, it put me in good stead for, the, for those other missions. Um, again, you know, training and just awareness and just general police, just general police background and awareness, I think. And throughout your time, especially Cyprus, you got to uh, explore quite a bit of the world. Yep. Jumping on yep. planes and whatnot. Yep. Good life experience there. Yeah, on an island in the, in the, in the Mediterranean, which you know, it's pretty neat anyway. And I hadn't been to the Middle East. I'd, I'd, my wife and I at that stage had done a trip through Europe, a Kentucky trip in 1978 so uh, but I'd never been in the Middle East and it was a big eye-opener and fell in love with it immediately I had this deja vu feeling I must have been a crusader or a crusader's horse or something but anyway I, I just I just everything was strange but it didn't appear strange I felt I know what's going to happen here I know I know this lifestyle I know you know Yavash Yavash and Cigar Cigar slowly slowly all that sort of stuff yeah I just got in the groove quite quickly and while we're in Cyprus, as I spent, I spent three years there, uh, we used to have the facility in those days to jump on a, in those days it was Canadian, so they had a C-130 supply plane, used to come in from Lahr in Germany all the time. So we'd pay our $2.50 or something and jump on that. They took us to Damascus and Tel Aviv to go to Israel, 
back into Lahr in Germany, we'd go, you know, and then you'd spend a week or two weeks leave there and then back to Cyprus. And and then at the end of both the tours, we I, had, I took about two or three months leave and toured all over Europe, you know, unbelievable. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was nice, good days, good days. When all the action slowed down for you and you wrapped up your time with the police, uh, what then happened for you? So when I, uh, I left the police in 98, and then I was asked to go back to Timor. So then I did that four-month contract, and then I got out again at the end of that. Uh, and then I applied for and, and worked up at Parliament House, the new Parliament House, in security. And I was in the, I was in the bomb team, bomb search team there, and also in charge of the VIP gallery in um, uh, House of Reps. And that was interesting. I did about five years there. Um, but then while I was there, I was also asked to come back in the police force to do CPP on the British High Commissioner. Uh, and I said, yeah, that was a three-month contract. So I did the bits and pieces up there and got out of the contract there part-time. Went back in the AFP, did that, then went back to Parliament House. And then after five years at Parliament House, because I, th- I mean, I was only working sessional work uh, when Parliament was sitting. So I wasn't there for the money. I was there for, you know, keep the sawdust going and, you know, a bit of social interaction. And so then after five years, I got out of that. And and then I, I'd always had an interest in the warm world from a kid. I first went there when I was about eight, I think, from the bush. And mum and dad brought me down and I was just like, mm, oh, this is pretty special. Because I was always a bit interested in the military side of things. And an old, very old, good friend of mine, who is now passed, sadly, um, he, he served in the Second World War. He joined up about to, uh, 4th of September 1939, just after war was declared. He was in the 6th Division, 2nd, 3rd Battalion. He served all through the big battles of the Middle East, Bardia, Tobruk. Then he went to Greece, Crete, and then went to Syria, uh, his his battalion, one of few in the AIF in those days, fought all the king's enemies, the Germans, the Japanese, the French and the Italians. And then uh, they went to Ceylon on their way back to Australia. Then he, he and his brother were in the same section, infantry, second, third. He was a section commander. And then they did uh, the Kokoda track trial. And they were both, he and his brother were both wounded at uh, Eora Creek. So then he got out, he was convalesced back to Australia and there was still war going on. And, and uh, I must have had some of his genes and whatever. So he, he said, no, I want to get back into this. So he succeeded in getting a discharge from the army. And then he went around the corner, literally, you know, like colloquial, went around, went around the corner and joined the Air Force because they guaranteed him that he could get in as an air crew uh, because he'd been in an infantry unit, combat, whatever. So then he joined the Empire Air Training Scheme, did training in Canada and became a uh, bomb aimer navigator in Stirling's and Halifax bombers over Europe in an RAF squadron. So he saw the war out and I think he retired, resigned from the military, the Air Force in, the, in that, that time, in 1946. 
So I'd known Al for many, I met him in 1973-74. So I'd, be, I'd known him for a long while. And I just thought his story, amazing man, so humble, just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous person. So I wanted to interview him, but I didn't work at the War Memorial. So I saw a couple of historians up there and I said, how can we, how can we get this to work? How can, we, how can, can you guys interview this guy? And I gave him his background. And they kept humming and harring and you know, wringing hands and oh, we're busy with and I said, guys, he's getting, this guy's getting older and his mind is like a computer at the moment. So we need to do this, a time, time limit here. So I said, I can interview him. Oh, well, yeah, we can't pay it. I said, I don't want to get paid. I just want to get this guy down on your interview database, you know, the oral history archives. So I said, oh, well, okay. Do you know how to interview? I said, guys, I did 25 years to the police. I mean, you know, this second nature. So I ended up interviewing Al and over two days because there was a lot of war so we had and it was really amazing their long-term memory these these older guys of which i'm now one um he remembered everything in crystal clear detail the only thing that he stumbled on and we went back to it and he clarified it was the name of the british destroyer that evacuated him from greece unbelievable and then we went back the next day and we did New Guinea and then the Air Force and all the rest of the stuff. But th and that was the start of it. And then a few people up there in the history section or in the oral history area, they listened to my interview and they liked the way it was done. Because when I interview, my theory was when I interviewed people, there was always, I, I tried to paint a, a, a word picture of the person because it never, it just doesn't start when they join the military. You know, th there is another person before the military, before the conflict in which they serve. So I tried to paint a picture, where were you born? Do all the normal antecedent stuff. Where were you born? Why did you join the military? Whatever branch it was, blah, blah, blah. What made you do it? And then you work through in a, in a sort of a um, autobug, or a biographical sense, yeah, like, paint a picture of this person. And they liked that approach. Because I've listened, and one of my jobs at the War Memorial, working at, at the film sound area, was to um, uh, listen to and edit interviews um, and correct mistakes and all that sort of stuff. But so many interviews I listened to started off Okay, so you caught a ship to the Middle East or you went to Vietnam. What happened then? And I thought, no, there's more to this. There's a person here. Yeah, so somebody listening to the interview in 10 years, 20 years' time, they get a picture of the per a sense of the person. And then the interview has more meaning because people are people. Everybody has a history. And so, yeah, as a result of that, I, I worked there for many years. I think I've clocked up my 15th or 16th year there now. And I've interviewed quite a few guys and uh, and probably later we'll talk about some of the interviews, but one of the, one in particular that, was, that to me just blew my brain. But yeah, yeah, so that's why I work there. And I'm, I'm still work there. I haven't been there since March because of COVID, but um, I'll go back. What initially drew you to going, 
I want to get the interview captured of your friend and at the Australian War Memorial. Had you already listened to some interviews before and then went No, actually... I hadn't. No, I hadn't listened to any, but I'd had an association with the War Memorial. I used to belong to a military history group or something, and I actually got Al to talk at, at this military history group that we, the forum was, or the venue was the War Memorial. And I just wanted to get him, and I knew they did interview. I knew they did oral history archives, and, and uh, so I thought that would be the best platform. I could have probably got somebody else. You, you guys weren't around then, so... Um, so I thought the War Memorial would be the best start point. And as it turned out, it was brilliant because he's now, you know, his family have now got copies of his interview and he's passed now. Um, and now, you know, they can listen to it. And, and I listened, I've listened to it since, since he's gone. And it's just lovely hearing his voice. And, you know, he was just such a gorgeous man. But anyway. And so over the, that time since you started doing the recordings and things like that, as you were indicating before, there are some that actually stand out. Yeah. Obviously, everyone's got a story yeah. behind their character yeah. and who they are. Yeah. But are there any sort of key ones that, that you'd be able to share with us now? Two guys I served in the regiment with, I interviewed them. Uh, one was the two I see in our patrol, and he was over in Canberra with his wife on, uh, on another, for another reason. And so it was a really ad hoc hasty. I gave him a list of questions. I said, Jesus, mate, can you just, you know, like get your mind around this because we can do it tomorrow because we had to jack up the sound room and the, you know, the interview. So. And I did that interview, which was great. But the one that really stands out was one of my last ones. And it was an old guy. He was 93, 94. And he served in New Guinea in the 2nd, 14th Battalion. But then he got out and he ended up uh, getting getting into Z Force, Z Special Force. But old Merv, he, he had a, unbelievable, he had a mind like a computer. So he flew over with his carer from Adelaide. We put him up overnight at a hotel. And the interview went for probably three or four hours. And again, his, his, his memory was crystal. So that was a really good interview. Went all through his war service. But the thing that stood out from him was that he was very aware of current events. But also, I was out in the car park talking with him while his carer went off and get the car, taking back to back to the hotel. I took him to the to the last post ceremony, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But while I was talking to Merv, one of the girls I worked with came up, and I'd already told her and a couple of other guys about this guy I was interviewing. And the interview had been completed. And she came up and I introduced both of them and, and chit chat chat. And as she walked away, old move, 94, right? Old move looked at her and he said, looked at me and he said, Jesus Don, she's a looker. And I said, Merv, you will never die. You will never die. He thought he 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 was aware of current events. He thought he thought young. He he had a, a young brain, you know? And I said, mate, that 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 just blows my brain that you still are aware of everything you're aware of current events you're aware of beautiful things women scenery nature everything i mean that was that was just great but one of the things one of the things i did institute with the, most of the people i interviewed was because when they come over it, it was probably the first time for many that they've unloaded a lot of this stuff unpacked it and 
a lot of them were very emotional during the interview and we had to stop, start, stop, start. But I thought a really nice way, and a lot of them had never been to Canberra before and they'd never been to the War Memorial. So it was a big experience for a lot of the guys, some had, but so I thought a really nice way to end off all the days and I'd, I'd make the offer that if you'd like and if you've got time and you can do it, we'll go along to the last post ceremony at five o'clock when the War Memorial shuts. And I said, it's just a really nice way to close the day You've done your interview, you're probably going back to your hotel or if you live locally, you're going home. But it's a really nice way to close off the day for you. And for a lot of them, that was the really emotional time of the day. But it was just really nice. And I, and I think some of the other interviewers that do interviews with veterans, they've picked up on that and, and they do that now because it, it just rounds it off. It just finishes it nicely bookends it, or yeah. whatever the expression is. So yeah, I, I had uh, I met many and had many interesting talks and chats with a lot of veterans. I always class them as walking history books. Everybody's got a story, everyone. It doesn't have, you don't have to be in the military. But, every, but these guys, I mean, a lot of them had done incredible things. But they're very ordinary people, and we've heard that expression, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. But a lot of these guys have done incredible things, and I just, I just, I just think that needs to be put down because we all go, we all, yeah, and I just need to get that their history down, you know, for people to listen to, and 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 understand what the, a lot of these people have been through. Throughout your time interviewing these veterans, have you noticed a difference or key similarities between? the older veterans to the newer veterans? Um, experiences are very similar. Uh, reasons for getting into the into the services are similar. My dad was in it, my uncle was in it, I knew somebody in it, whatever. I was in the cadets, you know. The reasons that I joined, the reasons that countless thousands of Australian guys and women now have joined. Um, so the reasons are very similar across the board. Um, some joined specifically to go away to uh, be deployed on an operational in an operational theatre. I have interviewed a few people from East Timor. I haven't done any Af Afghanistan type stuff because a lot of that stuff is still security caveats on it, so I haven't done any of that. Um, there, there's more similarities and differences, quite frankly. Uh, the stories are similar, the places are different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it, it's just interesting talking to guys. I've interviewed, I, I won't do Navy because that's too technical. Love the Navy, won't do it because you need to do justice to the interviewee and I know bits and pieces of a ship if they started talking technical terms about an engine or the type of armament, you know, I mean, that, and I spent a lot of time in choppers with nine squadron, but I don't, I wouldn't say I know Air Force stuff. So they have specific interviewers to do Air Force and Navy guys. So I do, I do Army and peacekeeping mainly. I've interviewed a lot of peacekeepers. But um, no, I, I would say more similarities than differences. Because the thing that drives most of us 
uh, the reasons are similar. Yeah, there's distinct, there's little distinctions, but and a lot of emotion in a lot of those interviews, as I said, because a lot of they don't talk to their partners or they can't, they haven't talked to their kids, they can't or they don't want to, um, and that's similar even with some of the current current veterans. So. No, more more similarities and differences, I would, I would say. After your service, both with the Army and the police, um, there would be a bit of a toll on you. Yeah, there is. And was there much support for you after that? No, not really. Um, I There was no counselling after Vietnam. Uh, there was no counselling in the police force, even, you know, even during the police force days. I think we started getting psychologists within the embedded within the police force in the late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s. But while I was in traf while I was in the police force, I went to quite a lot of suicides. I went to countless fatal accidents and some really bad ones. Uh, I went to not to investigate. I was never a, a detective, but I went to the scene of lots of quite a lot of murders in Canberra. And some really bad ones, and, and quite uh, infamous ones in the in the history of Canberra in the last fifty odd years. There was no counselling. Our counselling in those days, you'd go to a fatal accident, and uh, I went to some real bad ones, and was to go up to where New Parliament House is now. It used to be called Capitol Hill, with a slab of beer and drink it out. That was the that was the counselling. I mean, there was no counselling. Uh, there was no counselling. Uh, I didn't get any counselling after Bougainville. Not that I really needed it, I don't think, after Bougainville. But after East Timor, there was counselling available. But my partner at that stage, she, I was, I was gutted. I was just you know, not in a good place. And she persuaded me to go through DVA, or VVCS, you know, Veterans, Veterans, Vietnam Veterans Counselling Service, uh, to get help, which I did, and um, yeah, from then on, I'm still seeing a psych every now and again because PTSD cut in big time. Um, as I said to a, a mate of mine from the regiment years after after Timor, he he was over in Perth for some uh, over in Canberra for some reason. He said, "Mate, you've been to the well of courage too often, and the bloody well's dry. So no more. This is that's enough. As enough is enough." So, and I, I realised that, and I never offered to go back to, on any other missions. I, I just, it would have been a liability rather than anything. Because Timor, that was the brick wall, you know, that was, that, that, that did me and it did quite a few of the guys in actually. So, we know PTSD is all too much yep. a very real thing. Um, last time we were here, we recorded a panel chat just in the room yep. behind us. And Dave Finney was one of those yep. members. Yep. And that encounter was something that no one would have ever realised what would happen, what would eventuate just right. some months later. Yep, some months later, yeah. he committed suicide. And uh, while he was here, um, I, I am normally very perceptive. My, I call it my radar dish is up and polished all the time. I, I like try to suss people out. Maybe it's a good trade or a bad trade. I just wish I could turn it off sometimes. But I, I sat with opposite Dave or with Dave. Uh, we, I hadn't met him before that day. 
and we talked here at length, it was quite a long time, and we all had a photo taken under this tree. Sharon was there, um, Dave and I, and to me, no, he, he didn't present with anything unusual. He was actually very upbeat, optimistic, um, and in fact, I think during the interviews, I got a bit teary about something, but he was quite fine. He was, he was incredibly normal after what he'd been through, uh, and then sadly, months after that, uh, he took his own life. So that was, a, if you need an example of, of how PTSD affects, and he was quite young. I wouldn't even hesitate, I wouldn't even guess his age, but he was 30s, 40s. Um, young guy, world ahead of him, and yeah, that was the end. So it was a tragic end to that, that should never have happened. And I'm not going to get into details, but I think he was seeking help and he just couldn't get it. Yeah, so that's what happens. And that's, again, why I think that help should be readily available uh, to any veterans, anybody that needs it, because you know, it Absolutely. really affects them. Yeah. Looking back onto that, if you could put something in place going back to help that post-service recovery or um, giving you the resources that you needed, what would you have put in place knowing what you know now? Um, as an organisation, whether it be police, military, don't make the person that, is, that has been through whatever experience, don't make them feel guilty for needing or asking for help. Because a lot of guys, and I, I, and I know it's out there, a lot, of, a lot of the, when I say guys, I mean women too. A lot of these people, they know that if they go through their service organisation, and ask for help because they need it, um, it could affect their career. So that roadblock has to be taken out for a start because uh, I think it was Major General, don't, don't quote me, whatever rank he was, Cantwell, he, he went on, he went publicly after his term in, I think in Iraq, and he said, you know, PTSD, whack me, and uh, we need to look after these people. Uh, so I'd make I'd make the stigma of, of needing help not existent. If you need it, you get it, and it's available. And because everybody has has a point that you know, and it does affect you. You go away uh, as one person. You come back if you've experienced. You know, you can go away on lots of missions, and they're quite not easy, but eventless, eventful, eventless, you know, what is it? Uh, Non-eventful. Mm. But you go away on some missions and you hit the wall. So these people need to be looked after and they need to know that they can be looked after without affecting their career because you know, that's their life. And they did it, they volunteered, they did it willingly. And the country that sends you away should look after you when you come back. Um, and just being letting that, letting that message permeate right through all, out to all these places that send people away. Help's available if you need it, and it ain't going to affect your career. 
get it if you need it. That's probably what I... My one message. Now, I mean, there's probably others, but I haven't had time to think about it, so... Yeah. So, Don, if anyone wanted to listen to any of your interviews you've conducted with veterans at the Australian War Memorial, how would they best do that? Uh, they're online. They're on the they're on the database. I think most of them now have been downloaded on the uh, on the database. Um, I think you can, when it's all after this COVID thing is all over, I think you can go to the research centre, um, give the name of the interview e that you want to listen to and there are rooms at the war memorial in the research centre or there was might have all changed in the last 12 months uh, and you can actually listen to the put your headphones on listen to the interview um, some have been filmed for me but a lot of the interviews that I know other interviewers have done up there have been filmed so you can watch it and listen to it or just it's, it's either audio or audio visual so yeah they're all, they're all available well, Don, I think it's um, time to head to the War Memorial and have a look around there. Hardly a challenge. Hardly a challenge. Okay. Thanks for your time. So this was, this was uh, the gear I wore in my last, last patrol. Uh, we modified all our webbing and that's all my modified own webbing. I mean, these days it's all, you just order it and it all comes up exactly the way you want it. We used to go to disposal stores and buy, you know, pouch this and do this and sew it on and rivet and all this sort of stuff. The photo of the guy behind me is a guy called Frank Cashmore. He's a sergeant. He did two tours in two squadron. And, uh, Got an MID, I think he got two MIDs. And uh, we used to call him Cranky Frankie because uh, yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he was a good soldier, but <coughs> you don't want to do something wrong in his presence. And we were doing a 10-man patrol and I had, the, uh, I had the patrol camera. And we're in high Kunai going across, a, which was unusual. We couldn't get around this Kunai grass, so we had to go across it, which was dangerous. And I turned around with the patrol camera and I just went, smile, Frank. Well. I wore it when I got, we got back to doing that, but it was a good photo. Look, look at the look of this, it's a classic, it's a classic photo. So this is a really good gallery, this Vietnam gallery. I mean, it's, it's quite small, but it, it says a lot in a, in a very small area. The, the helicopter there's got a couple of scenarios. This is an APC, which we, uh, we did about three or four uh, patrol inserts with APCs. We used to hate these things. They used to think we were mad going out, five guys going out, you know, in, in Indian territory. And we thought they were mad because uh, we could remain concealed. Whereas these guys, noisy and everybody knew they were there. And uh, sadly, they had a high, fairly high casualty rate, the, uh, the tracks. Oh, look at the face of it. And where's, uh, if you can read that, he's 19 or 18 or something. He was yeah. killed. He's a light horse guy. But look at his face. I mean, there's my photo. Yes. I love that photo. But look at the, the should have been at school, should have been playing football or something. Look at the, oh, unbelievable. There's some really poignant photos in this one. Well, they do refresh these occasionally, don't they? Yeah. But I love it.
beautiful space one, isn't it? It is. It's like, a, to me, this is, I think I was saying yesterday, I'm not religious, but the, to me, this is this is a church. Yeah, and, and look at the, and I love the simplicity of the, of the design. They, I mean, they just captured it. The pine trees, the uh, archways, um, and you know what it's all about. You know why it's here. It's not just um, you know, religious messages. It's uh, you know, it's about our history and loss, and involvement and service, and, and all those all those attributes uh, are in the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier on the stained glass windows as you go around. You know, service, loyalty, comradeship, you know, professionalism, all that sort of stuff. It's just. That's very special place, very special. But most people, you know, they, unless they're looking for a particular person, mm. you know, a relative or whatever, but they walk, they walk along. There's 40,000 sides, 60 on that side, that's First World War, and they walk along, they just walk along and it's just, a cavalcade of names, it's just thousands of names, right? But what I tell people when they come is don't just walk past it and go, oh my God, you know, like all these, all these names. Drill into one name, just pick a name, any name, and just look at it and think of the ripple effect and the sense of loss that one, one person, one name on that wall had amongst how many people? You know, just think about it. Everybody had a mother, a father. They might have been married. They had sisters and brothers. They had friends. So instead of just looking at a, at a heap of names, just pick a name and then just stop and think. So just say, you were killed. Who would that affect? A lot of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why I, I tell people there's, there's 102 odd thousand names here. That's a, that's a lot of families, not just the people killed, that's a lot of families affected. Unbelievable, it's, a, it's, a very, it's, very, it's, it's beautiful that it's here and I love it, but it's very sad. Shots crack around you, you remember the high, but it wasn't excitement, it was just terrifying. The steel tore through clothing, mud walls, trees and flesh, as I emptied my mag towards nothing at best. And as I crawled forward and I looked through me sights, I turned and saw Rowdy give a wink and a smile. He shouted with me as he sprung to his feet with his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt all around him like rain on a pond as he made his way into the hell just beyond Ooh. Well I tried to forget how I tried 